following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. As the fourth and fifth graders are taking off, if you would, grab your Bible or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in 1 Peter. I'm going to say that a lot in the next upcoming weeks. 1 Peter. If you have no idea where 1 Peter is, the Bible makes this thing called a table of contents. It makes it really easy to find books of the Bible. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, right in front of you there are Bibles. Feel free to grab one of those if you want to take that with you. Go ahead. If you've never opened up the Bible before, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. And if you need help, just ask a friend and I'm sure they'll help you out. Man, I love congregational singing. You want to know why? Because if you're a bad singer, you just blend in with the rest of everybody else, right? Man, Bethany and I just love being a part of Community Gospel. We're so proud of you. Um, Just so many things that are going on uh, in and through our church, and we just continue to hear of all God is doing. Also, just want to thank you for um, those uh, who we got the opportunity to pray healing over. We're just continuing to pray for you. We know that sickness is rampant, and uh, there's a lot of things just going on. So we have prayed, and we will continue to pray. When I approach the Bible... Um, and I open up the word, man, I oftentimes uh, wonder if anybody's like me. You ever get that way? I mean, you get all these stories in the Bible. You got like Noah and David and Samson and Samuel and Paul and Peter and Mary and everybody else under the sun. And you think to yourself, is there anybody who is ordinary? Is there an ordinary human being that is like me? Like somebody who struggles with pride or maybe you're on the other side of that fence and you're kind of insecure. If you don't know what you struggle with, just lean to your left or to your right. That person will tell you what you struggle with. I promise. (laughs) I look at the Bible and I think, man, is there anybody in the Bible who maybe says things that they shouldn't say? Or maybe is there people in the Bible who want to say something, but they never do say anything? Maybe if there was a book that would speak about those things. And then uh, I opened up the Bible and I realized it's Peter. Peter is that person. He is that individual who is a common man who became very uncommon. He is one who is obedient to Jesus. And we realize that his life goes from ordinary to extraordinary. Jesus takes this average, everyday guy and he makes him into something that is amazing. His words of wisdom that are penned in this book are examples to follow. And they give us a lot of purpose in our life. And they also help us to be passionate about this Jesus who we worship. Hey, let me just pray and ask God to help me be clear this morning, and then we'll look at the text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help this message this morning just be clear. And I pray, God, uh, that you would just build up the church as we start into this book that Peter penned. And we ask that you would help us not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. God, there's a lot of theological truth in this book, and some of it is hard to understand. So would you help us understand these things? Would you help us to apply these things? When we get to some of these things that we're going to wrestle with, would you help us not get bogged down with them? That we wouldn't see them as being divisive, but that we could be unified in the fact that we know you as Lord and Savior. God, we thank you for this truth and the opportunity to study it. 
And may not just this morning be clear, but may the rest of the weeks and months that we spend in this book be edifying and encouraging as we make your son Jesus known. It's in your name I pray. Amen? All right, 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you can't pronounce something in the Bible, you say it fast and confident. Nobody knows the difference. All right. According to the foreknowledge of God, who is the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to the Son, Jesus Christ, by the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Whoa! That's quite the introduction to a letter. This is a letter. What we see here in Peter is he is writing to specific people. In the first century, these letters usually started this way. You'll see in the text the name of the writer, his or her title, the intended audience that it's going to go to, and a short greeting. Now, this would parallel what we see in Acts chapter 23, verse 26. It says in that passage of scripture, Claudius Lysias, there's the author, to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings. So this carries from this book to other books uh, all throughout the New Testament. We see the same that is true for things like Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans. The Bible has four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, which is essentially the foundation of the church. And then we get into these letters. And these letters are important because they tell the church how they should function, how they should live their everyday lives. Peter's going to do just that for us here. Now, go right to that first part of that verse in verse 1. Peter, circle that. We see in these two verses three keys to unlocking the rest of the text, okay? And in Peter, we see this is a man. The first key is that we can identify with. Whether we're man or woman, we can identify with Peter. Who's Peter? Good question. Peter's original name is Simon. Say Simon. When I think of Simon, I think of the game, remember? Way back in the 80s. Some of you guys are like, way back in the 80s. How about the 70s, 60s, 50s? Whoa, hold on. Let's not date ourselves, okay? Simon is his original name. He is from Bethsaida. That's in John chapter 1, verse 44. He lives in Capernaum, Mark chapter 1, which are both cities. You know these cities because they're right next to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did a lot of his works and where Jesus talked to many people. He was married. Imagine that, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. And he had a couple of buddies in a business. Their names were James and John. And they had a profitable fishing business in Luke chapter 5. They were doing okay for themselves, making money until Jesus comes along and calls them to a different path. Simon has a brother. His name is Andrew. And Andrew is sitting, hearing John the Baptist preach in John chapter 1 verse 35. And John the Baptist says to Andrew, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew is so flabbergasted, he runs over to Peter. He says, Peter, the Messiah has come. Drop your nets. Come follow Jesus. And so Peter goes over. He sees Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, let's give you a new name. When you meet Jesus, sometimes he gives you a new name. And he says, I'm going to call you Cephas, which is Aramaic. And that's important because that's the language that was spoken in that day. Now he also gives him another name and that is Peter and that is Greek. Now that's foundational because Peter's going to have a ministry to both the Jews and the Gentiles which his letter is going to be written. So we see that Jesus does this on purpose. Sends Peter, which is called the rock, 
all right, in John chapter 1, verse 40, saying that he's going to be instrumental in laying the foundations for the church. He's going to be the guy who is going to be so instrumental in making sure the church builds. And so Peter goes back to his profitable fishing business, and then Jesus officially calls him in Luke chapter 5. He sees Peter fishing. He says, drop those nets. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. And Peter says, absolutely. Now, some of us wonder why the disciples would do this. Why would they just drop everything and follow Jesus? Well, Jesus is a rabbi. He knows a lot about the Old Testament. And that was a second shot at life for them. I mean, if this guy was going to teach them the ways of the Old Testament and how to live accordingly, you would do the same thing. So we realize that Peter drops his nets and he leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Now, it looks like in the text that this is written from a third person. So a better way to translate this would be putting the word I before Peter, or I am Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to these five specific places. So Peter's a guy that we can identify with, but then he calls himself an apostle. What in the world is an apostle? Glad you asked me that too. Peter says that he's an apostle who is one who is sent out. Now, apostle has secular meaning, but it also has spiritual meaning, okay? Because apostles still exist today. Apostles in the secular still exist today. In the spiritual, we would say they're not there anymore. And let me see if I can clarify that for you. Secular apostles are sent out by someone in order to proclaim a message. They are also speaking and acting on that person's behalf. We don't call them apostles anymore. You know what we call them? Representatives. They're representatives for a person. But you could say apostle secular is one who is sent out by somebody who speaks on their behalf. Now, biblically, it changes a little bit, okay? And they have more qualifications, three more to be exact. Number one, they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. The qualification of a biblical apostle is they have seen the risen Christ. So we would put Paul in that category. We put Barnabas in that category. They've seen the risen Christ. This is why they don't exist anymore in regards to biblical standards. Because not only have they seen the risen Christ, but they've also been chosen clearly by the Holy Spirit in order to do a specific thing. Peter is going to help start the church. Now we know this is much like Ananias who went to go see Paul and tell him what Jesus was doing. In Acts chapter 9 verse 15, Ananias is given the command, go, Paul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. So, witnessed the resurrected Christ, chosen clearly by the Holy Spirit, and then was validated through signs and wonders. Peter did signs and wonders along with John and other apostles in the text. Acts chapter five, verse, uh, or excuse me, Acts chapter two, verse forty-three, and Second Corinthians twelve. These were qualifications that were laid out before the church. Now, Peter says, I, Peter, am an apostle given godly authority by Jesus during his earthly ministry as a messenger for you. I want to show you what Jesus has in store for you. I want to show you how to live so that you can go from ordinary to extraordinary, so that you can go from common to uncommon. All right? You can be like me, but you can do something. Now, the question is, are there apostles today? Another good question Well, some today would say that we're going to restore that position of what we call apostolic authority. Uh, There's no biblical evidence to back that this happens. Apostolic authority, meaning transfer from one uh, apostle to the other, to the other, to the other, it's not in the text. There is no understanding of that role of the apostle like the New Testament church today. As a matter of fact, if one were to say, I am an apostle, we would say, ah, you are a false teacher, okay? We would put them in that category because if you saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, whoa, look out, all right? 
Maybe it was the pizza that you had the night before and not the presence of God himself, okay? Now, however, however, remember, we're like Peter, okay? We look at this and we say, man, we're like Peter. So what is my role then as a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, first would be to accept the gospel that Christ came, died, and rose again, and I believe that I'm a sinner and Jesus Blood that was shed on the cross covers my sins. So if I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I am called to be not necessarily his apostle, but his ambassador. That's Matthew chapter 28. The great commandment is given to you to go and make disciples, to proclaim Jesus. So Peter is an apostle. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's how God takes us from common to uncommon. And we can resonate with Peter. Because Peter makes a ton of mistakes. We identify with him because he's so outrightly human. It's interesting. If we look at Peter's life, he opens his mouth at inappropriate times. Ever been there? We see that Peter should have talked when he didn't talk. Ever been there? He says some crazy stuff. And you know what? Jesus loves him the entire way. He looks at Peter. He says, Peter, you're, you're a funny guy. I love you. I think sometimes when we go off the deep end, Jesus looks at us and goes, well, I'm diving in after you, right? It's exactly what he did with Peter's life, literally and figuratively. One minute, Peter's pledging his undying devotion to Jesus. And then the next minute, he's just swearing that he never met him. Peter is every single one of us. Somebody sat on their panic button. (laughs) What we get here in the first part of verse 1 is that God uses the ordinary. Some of us look in the mirror and we think to ourselves, could God ever use me? I just feel like I'm an ordinary person. Could God ever do something amazing in my life? If there's any biblical evidence that God could do something amazing in the ordinary, it is in the life of Peter, a fisherman from Galilee who Jesus called to be a fisher of men. And why? Because Peter was willing to be conformed to the image of Christ. Are you willing to be conformed to the image of Christ. If we start First Peter, we have to ask that question. Am I willing to be conformed to the image of Christ, to do the things that Jesus is asking me to do? There's nothing special about Peter, no religious education, no well-known family. He doesn't have a popular last name. He just has an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus takes the common and he makes him uncommon when you confess to your sinner and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Savior. That is the foundation for Peter's letter, that he is a follower of Christ. And when we're followers of Christ, something amazing happens. People take notice. When your life is so radically different, people take notice. They look at you and they think to themselves, man, what is going on in your life? And we know that's true because in Acts chapter 4, when they, the crowd, saw Peter and John, ordinary men, realizing they were unschooled, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. All throughout Peter's letter, we're going to see that he is uncommon because he has spent time with Jesus. Can the same be said about you and me? So the first key to unlocking Peter is he is a man that we can identify with. Well, then he keeps going, okay? Second key that we have in the book is that there is an audience here that we can sit and we can resonate with. Look at the rest of that place. Uh, Five places here in Asia Minor. Now, if you just read those passively, you're probably thinking to yourself, man, What are all these places, and what is the biblical significance? That's what I asked, all right? First one is we see Pontius. Now, these are to Jews and Gentiles, okay, who are scattered all over the place. We'll get there in just a second. We see Pontius with the south coast of the Black Sea. Now, you're probably like, 
irrelevant, doesn't make any sense to me, um, checking out. Don't check out just yet. You want to know why that place is important? Because that's where Andrew did the work for the gospel. First place that Peter sends his letter is to a family member telling him what needs to be done. So that's Andrew's work. Second place, Galatia, central part of Asia Minor, where we get the book of Galatians. Paul's work, another member who was in the ministry. Then you have Cappadocia, which is inland, east of Galatia, more of Paul's work. Now, Asia's interesting, not the continent. First reading, you probably look at that, you go, oh, the continent of Asia, elephants, right? Nope, nope, not just yet, all right? What we see here is, this is a piece of land on the west coast, and the reason that's so important is because all seven churches of Revelation that are addressed are located here. And then you have Bethina, which is on the west of Pontus along the Black Sea, and there's multiple and massive amounts of church history that transpire there too as well. Now, why would he say that? Why would he put all five of those in that little category? When you wrote a letter in the New Testament, you would give it to the mail carrier. Okay, put the stamp on it and give it over to the mail carrier. And they would take it to where it needed to go. And they would look at the first part of the letter and say, where are we going? And they look at it and they say, oh, we're going here. And that's a circular route. Okay? So Peter does this for the mail carrier. He says, this is the route in which you should go. Now, literally in the Bible, it says, to the elect exiles who are sojourners excuse me, of the dispersion. What in the world does that mean? Good question. These are, maybe your translation says it, God's chosen people. How do I become God's chosen person? I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And we see here, some translations say chosen ones, which literally means Israel as a whole. Now, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Don't check out just yet, because this is why. When it says chosen ones, it's speaking of Israel as a whole, who was called and chosen by God to be his own people. Jews. But as God chose Jews in the Old Testament, now Peter is laying the foundation because he says this includes Gentiles. The chosen ones aren't necessarily any more Jews. They are Jews and Gentiles. This is the passage of scripture that we look at where we realize that collectively together believers, Jews and Gentiles, are now the new Israel, the people of God. You are accepted in that family when you believe in Jesus. What couldn't be in the past is now totally possible. If you read that in one of those five cities, you were resident in one of those five cities, you thought to yourself, whoa, I'm a part of the chosen people of God because of the relationship I have with Christ. We'll get to that later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. So if you're thinking, man, what, what in the world? Um, we'll get to it. Don't worry about it. Remember, we're just laying a foundation. Circle that word exiles there. Temporary residents foreigners settling in a temporary place with no intention to take personal, uh, permanent residence. Dispersion, again, refers to Jews who lived outside of the Holy Land. So when you put those words together, it is a reference to Jews and Gentiles who are scattered all over the place and called to conduct themselves in a specific manner. So what does that have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you. Because guess what? We're still scattered. We are still scattered all over the world as believers, Jew and Gentile. And we're called and commanded in this passage of Scripture to live two ways. Number one, we live like this world isn't our home. We're foreigners. When we start acting like Jesus, this world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When we start acting like Jesus, people start acting opposite of how they normally act. And we think to ourselves, why? Because this world is not our home. 
Just as Jews are strangers outside of the Holy Land in their nationality, culture, and religion, so we as believers are strangers as well. We should live that way. If you ever think as a person, man, why do I feel so out of place? It's not a bad thing, especially when you're following Jesus. Number two, you should long for your heavenly home. If this world's not our home, then we long to be in heaven. Just as the Jews long to return back into the Holy Land, their true home, believers long for the end of this earth to obtain heavenly citizenship. Now, we do this all the time. You ever plan for vacation? Man, in my house, I don't know what that looks like for your house, but in my house, we plan for vacation. And we study the lay of the land, right? I mean, we'll break out the maps and we'll say, okay, here's how we're going to get there. Here's how uh, we're going to arrive at the destination. And then when we get to the destination, this is what we're going to do. And we look at all the places in which we're going to eat. And we read all the menus and we look at all the food and we think to ourselves, oh, I can't wait to get my mouth around that sandwich, right? You ever done that when you go out to eat? Some of you do that when you go out to eat. You study the menu so that when you get to the restaurant, you don't have to go through the ordeal of waiting to say, well, what do you think, waitress, waiter, right? That's exactly how it should be for us as exiles. Some people will die on this earth and they will take a leap into heaven and it will feel foreign to them because they never studied the lay of the land. And some people will just simply take a step from this life to the next. And it will feel so common. How do you want to walk into eternity? You want to walk into eternity? Like, man, this is different. Whoa, totally different than everything I had imagined. Or do we study the lay of the land so well that when our time comes, and we don't know when that will be, we walk into heaven and we look at Jesus and we say, man, I've been walking with you for so long. None of this feels different. That's how I want to go into heaven. I want to walk into heaven saying, man, I've been studying this for so long. It's all true. So we have a man we can identify with. We have people that we can sit with, resonate with. All of us longing to get to our heavenly home because this world is not our home. And then watch this. You have a God who you can worship in the end. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, let's read that just one more time. It says here, This is the Trinity, if you will, okay? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verse two, Peter uses the word according, which helps his audience understand God in three specific ways, okay? And the Trinity here is appropriate. Now you have, first of all, the foreknowledge of God. Oh, Lord, help me with this one. All right. It's a difficult word to interpret, and people get divisive when it comes to the foreknowledge of God. It simply means to know beforehand, that God knows beforehand. Peter is saying that God knew all along who would choose them at the right time according to his purpose. God has to know, because if he doesn't know, then his knowledge is limited. And if his knowledge is limited, he's not God. Now, that's election problems, right? So, wait, I thought we had a choice. I thought we freely get to choose on whether or not we're going to worship God. But then you're saying God chooses me. Well, remember, Peter is speaking to Jews and 
Gentiles who were probably completely unaware of the theological ramifications that would come from this passage of Scripture, okay? And they're looking at it, and they're saying, let's restructure a little bit. And it says, God the Father chose you according to his own purpose. That is what he wanted to accomplish. So you have predestination problems ahead. So go back to that word chosen, that God chose people, but we have a choice. That's it. God knows, but you get to choose. And in my finite brain, I don't understand it. I don't understand it, and here's what I have come to realize. People who don't know Jesus, huge problem for them. You're telling me that God knows, but I have a choice? Yep. And they get really defensive about it. Well, that's ridiculous. Okay, but people who know Jesus, we get really excited about it, right? Like, we get really excited over the fact that God would choose us, but we would still have a choice, we get really excited over the fact that, wow, God in his sovereignty loves us enough and cares about us enough and wants a relationship with us. There's no problems for the believer because we've accepted it. So when I talk to somebody about this and they say, well, God already knows, so I'm just going to be deliberately disobedient. You know what that is in the Bible? That's foolish. You know what the Greek word for foolish is? That's stupid. Why would you do that? That's like my kids looking at me going, you say I'm a muck, you say I walk like you, you say I talk like you, but I'm not one of you. That's stupid. You are one of me. So why wouldn't you choose me if I have chosen you? I don't understand it. I don't know how it works, but I know it takes faith to believe it. He is God. His ways are not like my ways. His thoughts are not like my thoughts. His actions are not like my actions. I know that he knows, but I also know that I have a choice. That is the foreknowledge of God. That's the truth. Sanctified by the Spirit. If I am one of God's chosen, he sanctifies and sets me apart. Now, this is a process. We talked about this a little bit last week. And this is what it means to be holy. Now, holy is not mean be ethical. We get into some problems here. Because people say, oh, I'm holy, meaning I'm ethical. Did you know people accept Jesus just so they can sit in an ethical circle with all their friends? If you have trusted Jesus Christ so that you will be ethical, you have missed the gospel entirely. The goal of the gospel is not that you would be ethical and moral. It would be that you'd be godly and holy, as God is holy. So when you're sanctified by the Spirit, we realize that this is a relational issue. So if my kids look at me and they say, Dad, how do you want me to act? I don't want you to get in trouble. Why not? Because you're my child. Because everything that you do is a representation of me. Oh, I didn't know. Now you do. Live accordingly. Ask questions. Ponder greatly. Study as much as you can. So how does this apply to the foreknowledge of God? Twofold. Number one, sanctification as a believer is part of God's purpose when you are chosen by him that you would set yourself apart from the rest of society. That you would be set apart. That you would live different the whole purpose of the foreknowledge of God in choosing us is so that you would be set apart, that you would look different, that you would talk different, that you would act different, that you would, like Peter and John, have people look at you and be astonished because you have been with Jesus. But also, number two, being chosen means that it's part of belonging and being set apart validates the fact that we are in relationship with Jesus. So if there's anything that comes to the surface on being in a relationship with Christ, it's validation that I know him. This is why God commands us to tell people the gospel. It is not just simply so that people will come to know Jesus. 
It is so that you would be validated in your relationship with Jesus. Do you realize that every time we share our faith and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, we not only give them the opportunity to confess, but we also give ourselves the opportunity to be validated. That's the beauty of the gospel. When my kids look at somebody else and they say, I'm not going to do that. And they go, why not? Because you don't know my dad. I look at it and go, amen. I get really excited, right? I heard this uh, the other day when my daughter was in a situation. She had no idea that I heard her. And one of her friends said, hey, you want to do this? And she said, no, I can't. They said, why not? She said, because I'll get in trouble for it. My dad will go crazy. And I, I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, that's right, I will. <laughs> but I didn't. I was silent. God does that for us. When you are sanctified and set apart, he screams, yes, tell people the reason why you do what you do. Be sanctified. Now, the thing about it is foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit, obedience of Christ. These are all going to be articulated in the next couple of verses, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying we should understand all these entirely at the start. But what I am saying is that we should be set apart, belonging to the cause of Jesus. For, look what he says, the third thing, the obedience of Christ. A better wording of that would be as the result of this would cause you to be obedient to Jesus by the purification of his blood. It's exactly what Jesus preached on the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing. As I was studying for this passage of scripture, there's so many commentaries that link Peter with the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, we just did that. God the Father would have you live a certain way. That you would be set apart for a certain purpose. But it can't happen without Jesus' death and resurrection. You do what Jesus Christ has told you to do because you're not alone, because you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who God knew he would send from the beginning of time. Purified by his blood is literally sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, which is a metaphor. And where do you get that? Well, if you're a Jew and you're sitting there and you're hearing what Peter is saying, that would have resonated with you big time. Because you would have gone back to Exodus chapter 24, where covenant sacrifice is described. Now, in the Old Testament, it's a covenant relationship, okay? And what I mean by covenant is that God made a covenant with his people that the, sacri- or that the um, removal of their sins would be temporary. In the New Testament, because of Jesus' blood, it was permanent. And in Exodus 24, verse 1, the ceremony, blood was sprinkled on the altar, which symbolized people's obedience to God. We're doing this because God told us to do this. But then, here's the crazy thing. Can you imagine doing this in church today? They would take the blood and they would throw it on people. I don't know how you feel about church, but if people start throwing blood on me, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> okay? The second we start doing that. But that's what they would do. They would throw it on people. And it symbolized that people shared in the blessings of the sacrifice, both in the offering of salvation, God being able to restore his people, but in the sanctification, God setting apart his people. So cleansing, purification, and forgiveness were not formally parts of understanding the sacrifice, but they were associated with it, and they were reflected in Jesus. So if you are a Jew and you're sitting there and you're hearing that, you're thinking to yourself, I am forgiven, I am free, I am protected, I am loved, I am cared for because of what Jesus did on the cross. He allows me to enter and to participate in what he has for me. His inheritance is at hand. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. This is why baptism is so important as a believer. 
Because when we get baptized, it is symbolic expression of the fact that the old has gone and the new has come. It's an amazing opportunity for us to witness what happens in the life of a believer that no longer is it a temporary sacrifice, it's a permanent sacrifice. It is one that sets us apart from the rest of the world. It is how Paul says it. Go and sin no more. Because you have received the grace of Christ, do we just let sin abound? No, we don't do that. Do we continue to remain in our sinful state if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? No, we don't do that. (laughs) Look at the very end. This is the amazing part of the whole conclusion of the first two verses. Knowing all these things, This is just his introduction, okay? He looks at us and he says, Peter, that is, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why would he say that? Knowing all these things about God who loves us and cares, being sanctified and set apart and being obedient to Jesus, living in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to him. Why did he do that? Circle the word grace, which was commonly used by Greek speakers to refer to God's undeserved love. Okay, mercy is the withholding of judgment that you so rightfully deserve. Grace is the undeserved favor. This is what I'm going to give you even though you don't deserve it. Peace, you can circle that too as well, is used among Jews speaking about total health and well-being. This is a completeness, if you will. So when Peter uses that together, it is the sum total of what God bestows on his people in order for them to enjoy their life, regardless of trials and tribulations. Because God knows, because God sets apart, because God washes away sins, you now have grace and peace in abundance. You can be complete, regardless of what transpires in your life. Regardless of the times when you find yourself saying things you shouldn't say. Regardless of the times when you should say something and you don't say anything. Regardless of the times when you are in great health or if you find yourself in poor health. Regardless of the fact if your job is booming or if it is tanking. Regardless of the fact if your marriage is doing wonderful or if you find yourselves just fighting with each other at each and every single turn. Regardless of the things that are thrown at you in this life, because of God's foreknowledge, because of his sanctification, and because of Jesus' blood, you can face tomorrow. You can face today. That's what Peter tells us in the text. All of these things are for you. The inheritance is at hand, but you can't have it if you don't know Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith and trust, it is not available to you. Daily dependence is what he says. So when he uses, may peace and grace be multiplied to you, he's giving a praise to God, a prayer for the people, and a blessing for the church. And he says, I pray that God may give you this grace, may give you this peace in abundance, so that you will be complete, lacking in nothing. There are times that we are going to get in all these trials and tribulations in life and we're going to think to ourselves, who's there for me? Who cares? Jesus does. He first loved us. That's the start of 1 Peter. The inheritance is at hand. And next week we talk about that, what that means to accept that inheritance. Let me pray for you. If you could uh, do me a favor. And if you could just um, flip your hands over. Just put whatever you have down in your lap. Just flip your hands over. Um, kind of like in a posture of receiving. And, and let's just imagine that Peter is here in this place. 
and that he has just proclaimed those words to us. And he has just said to us these things that we need to hear. And now we have to receive them. And so, uh, not out loud, uh, but in your hearts, if you, if you mean it. And if you're not a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you haven't confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you need to make that decision, the little blue bookmark in the front of the pew, in, in front of you. You can go through that and read that. We're going to assume that we know Jesus here in this place, that you know Jesus here in this place. And I just want you to, uh, to receive what Peter has to say, because I don't know where you're at, and, and I just want to thank you so much for being able to pray for those who are sick this morning. That, that means the world to me to be able to do that. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if you're that person who says things that you shouldn't say, or that um, you, you need to say more and you hold back. I don't know if your job's going great, not going great. But I know when we're focused on the issues and, and we're not focused on Jesus, we lose perspective. And so um, we're, we're gonna, just going to receive what Peter has to say to us through Jesus Christ. And in your heart, I just want you to say, God, your grace is enough. Not to me, to Jesus, just in your heart. God, I receive your grace. Just welcome that. Say it again. God, I receive your grace. And I know there's a lot of you who are out there who are just in turmoil and, and there's no peace in your life. And so receive that. Say, God, I receive your peace. Maybe we need to say it over and over again until it really starts to resonate. God, I receive your peace. And say, God, would you just multiply that in abundance in my life? Would you just multiply that in abundance in my life? Would that be enough, Jesus? Would your grace and your peace just resonate in my life? Just tell Jesus that. God, I receive your grace and your peace. Would you just resonate that in my life this morning? God, help us know and understand and receive that today, that we can be complete, lacking in nothing because of our salvation in Christ, that you are enough. We thank you that you are our Savior, both for this day and for that day to come. Lord Jesus, we love you so much because you first loved us. Help us to remember that this week as we go and make your Son known. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.